as we uh, read those psalms together every time we meet like this. And um, we were talking recently, just saying, you know, are we going to carry on to that? Should we do it or not? And we don't want to just do something because we've always done it. Um, but I think there's so much benefit um, from reading God's Word together. Um, and a big thank you to, to Dave for the choosing the Psalms that he's choosing for us, because they're so wonderful in the context of what we're studying. Um, and it's kind of comforting in a sense, because what we're doing as we go through the Bible at the moment, we're kind of summarizing big chunks of Scripture. And we're in good company, because we find the psalmists have done exactly the same thing. And uh, that psalm we just looked at, Psalm 78, what a wonderful psalm. But do we really believe those things that we read there? You know, the whole idea of the Red Sea parting, Moses hitting a rock with a stick and water coming out of it. It's kind of, in the days that we live, can we really be expected to believe those things? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So, before we turn to the Word, let's just bow our hearts. Father, we do thank you for your Word. We thank you, Lord, that it is living and powerful. Father, we thank you that your Word changes us. It changes the way that we view the world, and most importantly, the way we view ourselves. Lord, even more than those things, your word reveals our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you that on every page, there are glimpses of his wonderful glory and majesty, and his redemptive work in bringing us back, Lord, from death and giving us the opportunity to live again, to be born again, to start a new life with a new spirit. And so, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray your blessing on this time. Give us ears to hear, we pray, and hearts that are ready to receive. Lord, we want to grow in knowledge and grace. Because, Lord, we want to bring glory to you through the lives that we live. So, Lord, we commit to you this time and ask for your blessing on it now. In Jesus' name, amen. So far, we've uh, made as far as the book of Exodus Last time, the fourth session, we kind of covered the first 12 chapters of the book, which obviously deals with the call of Moses, the ten plagues of Egypt, and then the Passover, and just the introduction really to the Passover. Um, What we're going to be looking at this morning is the remainder of the book of Exodus, and there's some wonderful things here. Of course, the crossing of the Red Sea, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, and then this whole incident with the golden calf. And then finally we'll look at the tabernacle, this tent that the children of Israel were instructed to, to make, and where God said that he would dwell amongst them in their midst. So that's where we're going this morning. Um, we said last time, and I think it's worth reiterating, that we can see the book of Exodus in at least three different ways. So firstly, it's a book of history, and we'll see this morning just how accurate that history is that we have recorded for us here. This isn't mythology. This is true history. But it's also a book of prophecy. We see lots of types and shadows and models of things that are yet to be. And finally, it's a book of devotional typology, one commentator would put it as. Really, it's the book that tells the story of your life and my life. How that we were trapped in sin and been led from that into a new life. See, on the surface, we've got a book that tells us of the deliverance of the children of Israel from captivity in Egypt. 
their miraculous journey through the Red Sea and their struggle through the wilderness before eventually reaching the promised land. But underneath that, we've got our own miraculous deliverance from the cruel taskmasters of sin, if you like, represented as the Egyptians here. And our path through the waters of baptism, just like they went through the Red Sea. Identifying ourselves with Christ's death on our behalf. Of course, they had the shed blood of a lamb. Well, we also have the shed blood of the lamb. And their subsequent stru- the subsequent struggle that they had, and we see mirrored in our own lives, is the struggle that once we become Christians, it's not all over. But there's this battle. We begin our own wilderness wanderings, if you like. And we're often yearning for the things of Egypt, just as they were. We think about the things of the old life. And sometimes it's hard to let go of those things. And if you've been a Christian for more than probably a few months, you'll already have found in your own life that there's things that now God is pointing to you, saying, I want that to go. That initially you didn't think was a problem. But as you grow in knowledge and grace, as you learn more about the holiness of our God, so God highlights those things in his timing, that once we thought we're fine, and suddenly we realize that actually that's not helping me. You know, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And God will bring to our attention those things that need to change. And, of course, we see God's miraculous provision time and again. And finally, we'll end up also, as it were, at the promised land. That land that God has promised us. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And the Lord has wonderful blessings in store for us. Well, last time we also went through looking at the plagues in Egypt. We have three groups that they're broken down into. um, And all of these plagues were (coughs) direct attacks on the gods of the Egyptians. They're gods that they believe were responsible for life or for whatever else. And God directly targets them to show them that the gods they worship were no gods at all. And of course we also see a prophetic undertone there. As we see all of those uh, judgments again reiterated in the book of Revelation. And it's an incredible parallel that we have drawn. And of course... We talked last time about the Pharaoh of the Exodus, that Pharaoh that's on the throne at this point, being uh, an Assyrian, we're told in Scripture. Just like Antichrist is going to be given that title as well. And again, oppressing God's people. So many parallels. So what we're going to do is uh, go through from chapter 13 to the end of the book, and really the the simple breakdown of these chapters. Chapter 13, we're going to just look at this issue of the firstborn. Chapter 14 will be the actual flight from Egypt, the actual exodus itself. Chapter 15, Moses will give this wonderful song to the Lord of praise. Chapter 16, we see them journey on to Mount Sinai. Um, Chapter 17, we find... They enter into their first real battle, the first war that the nation has to face with Amalek. In chapter 18, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, appears on the scene and gives some uh, what would appear to be not such good advice. A lot of commentators think he gives some great advice. Well, we'll talk about that in a moment. And then from chapter 19 through 23, we see the giving of the law. 
you know, the Jews have 613 commandments. That's how they break this down. Uh, and that's all in those chapters there. Then from chapter 24 through 31, Moses on Sinai is given the instructions for the building of the tabernacle and the priesthood and their clothing and all of those things. While that's going on, down in the camp below, chapter 32, we find that they fall into sin. And they start to worship this golden calf that they make. that just happened to appear. yeah. And then to conclude the book from chapters 33 through 40, we actually see the work begin on this tabernacle that Moses had got these instructions for. And so that's kind of what we're, we're going to be trying to uh, fly through in the next uh, two to three hours. No, just joking. Okay, chapter 13, verse 1. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn, whatsoever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast, it is mine. God making a claim here on that which is born first. Verse 3 carries on. Moses said unto the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand the Lord brought you out from this place. There shall no leavened bread be eaten. This day came you out in the month Abib, and it shall be when the Lord shall bring thee into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites and the Hivites, the Jebusites, which he swore unto thy fathers to give thee a land flowing with milk and honey, that thou shalt keep this service in this month. So there's a couple of instructions now that the children of Israel are being given. The first we find is regarding this Passover now. It's to become an annual celebration, remembered throughout their generations. You know, it's interesting. I remember hearing Dave Hunt once speak about this. And he said the very fact that they celebrate the Passover shows you that this record is true. Because it had to have started somewhere. And it was something that was to continue throughout their generations. As a seven-day festival period, if you like, with the 14th being specifically the Feast of Passover itself. No unleavened bread permitted during that time. Leaven, speaking of sin. But then, if we jump to Exodus 13, verse 14, God gives another instruction. And again, just uh, unpacking a little bit more about this issue with the firstborn. He says, it shall be... That when thy son asked thee in time to come, saying, What is this? That thou shalt say unto him, By strength of hand the Lord brought us out from Egypt, from the house of bondage. And it came to pass, when Pharaoh would hardly let us go, that the Lord slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all that opens the matrix, being males, but all the firstborn of my children I redeem. And it shall be for a token upon thine hand and for thy frontlets between thine eyes. For by strength of hand the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt. There's a couple of things here. Firstly, it's good that parents teach their children. It's good that we tell our children about the things the Lord has done for us. The way the Lord has worked in our lives. You know, they should be able to see from the way we conduct ourselves that we're different from maybe some of the other parents of the people they go to school with, for example. But more than that, we should instruct them. It's part of our role, part of our our responsibilities as parents. But also this whole idea that this 
whole firstborn thing that God, because he'd slain the firstborn and because Israel had already said were as his firstborn, they're told to remember this and that all the firstborn of everything would belong to the Lord effectively. But the firstborn child would be purchased back, redeemed. There's lovely pictures in all of these things we could spend more time going into. And they were to put them on their hand or those frontlets between their eyes. And of course, we're familiar, we looked when we were studying through the book of Matthew, these phylacteries, these little boxes or these wristbands and so on, that typically they would put scriptures in. And these are the kind of things they would have to remind them continually of God's laws, God's rules, God's ordinances. And the Jews, even to this day, the Orthodox Jews, will still wear these things. Verse 17 says, It came to pass that when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest peradventure when the people repent when they see war and they return to Egypt. But God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up harnessed out of the land of Egypt. If you remember back in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, when he's there before the burning bush, God gives a very simple instruction. He says, when you've brought the children of Israel, the people forth out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. Moses was in Arabia or Midian at the time. And he's told to bring the people back there. So Moses knew the destination, but he didn't know the route. And God, we find, leads Moses along the path that he knows is best. There's a lot of parallels we can draw in our own life because there are times that we maybe know where God's taking us, but we don't necessarily know the route that we're going to take. You know, we would often take a much easier path than being hemmed in in the desert and then confronted with an enemy behind us and the Red Sea in front of us. No escape. But of course God brings us into those kind of situations to show that he is Lord and to stop us trusting in our own ability. You see, if we always went the easy option, we'd start to think, well, we can do this, this is okay. But God continually puts us in positions where we realize we can't do it. We need him. We need his strength, his guidance, his grace. Now, the traditional route of the Exodus, people will talk about the crossing point being some of these little marshy bits up here. And, uh, of course, the children of Israel apparently just crossed in two to three feet of water. Uh, And uh, some commentators, even today, still hold to that kind of view. Uh, of course, the real miracle is there that the whole Egyptian army then drowned in two to three feet of water, uh, if that were the case. And people suggest that the children of Israel le- left Egypt somewhere up here through the Red Sea, or this, this section of the Red Sea here, um, and then all the way down here until they get to Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai that we have in the Sinai Peninsula was named um, by Helena, the mother of Constantine. Constantine commissioned her to go and find Sinai. So she comes down here, she finds a mountain. What else could it be? So it gets the title Mount Sinai. And from that point on, everybody assumes that's Mount Sinai. Despite the fact it wasn't in Midian, 
where the mountain was that Moses was at with the burning bush, despite the fact that the Apostle Paul tells us that Mount Sinai is in Arabia, this whole mythology has been built up um, to say that this is the side of Mount Sinai. So because of that, they have to um, put the Red Sea crossing somewhere up here. This is a typical map from the back of a Bible. The other thing you'll notice, rather deceitfully actually, uh, is that they'll put here Red Sea. And this side they'll put Gulf of Aqaba. And so you tend to think, well, that has to be it then, because that's the Red Sea. No, all of this is the Red Sea, and it goes way on down and out into the ocean from there. But these are just different branches of the Red Sea. The Red Sea proper obviously carries on from down there as well. So there's many problems with the traditional view. Firstly, there's no archaeological evidence. And critics have a field day with this. They say, oh, of course the Bible says that something up to two million people left Egypt. Well, two million people would leave some sort of trace. And there's no evidence in the Sinai Peninsula. No kidding. There's no geographical evidence either. And something else we should be aware of is that northern Sinai also had an Egyptian military presence. And was still part of Egypt. The Sinai Peninsula was part of Egypt. And God had promised to take them out of Egypt. Uh, just as an aside, Genesis 16 verse 7, when Hagar, Abraham's servant uh, lady uh, through whom he has Ishmael, when she's leaving, she comes to Shur. The word Shur means wall, and it was like the border of Egypt. That's in the, the northern edge of the Sinai Peninsula. So the Sinai Peninsula was still Egypt. Now the biblical account is somewhat uh, different and far more interesting. We're familiar with Goshen, this place that's a very fertile part of Egypt where the children of Israel dwelt. Now, we're already told, we've read in Scripture, that, that God wanted to avoid contact with the Philistines because it would frighten fledgling Israel. And the Philistines typically were up in this region up here. And we're familiar with this uh, area today. Um, it's a, a place that still makes the news an awful lot. Um, this uh, period, uh, area of Gaza um, and we find the Philistines typically were encamped in around this area so if we look at it <coughs> Midian as we've said already is over here in what is today Arabia that would be the natural route now Moses probably would have taken a similar route when he fled Egypt in the first case but what God tells him to do is to turn off to not go that way not go along the way of the Philistines but the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea we're told and it's interesting in Exodus 14 verse 3 we read for Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel they are entangled in the land the wilderness has shut them in and of course that's exactly the situation if they were in this section they would be completely trapped and obviously Pharaoh and his forces would follow on. We read something else interesting though. In verse 21 of chapter 13, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. You see, God will never leave Israel without guidance. Clearly the case here. And Israel, on the other hand, will leave God's guidance many times. Uh, not dissimilar to ourselves. There's a wonderful picture of the Trinity, though, at work here. Because the pillar is very clearly a type of the Holy Spirit. 
He came after the sacrificial lamb. And just as it was with that, in our experience, it was the blood, shed blood of the lamb of Jesus. And it was following that that we get to the time of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is given. The Holy Spirit will direct and comfort the people, illuminate their path, keep the ungodly in darkness. Very interesting parallels we see here. So as we jump off into chapter 14, we read there the first couple of verses. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they turn and encamp before Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, over against Baal-Zephon. Before it usually camp by the sea. Now, unfortunately, we've lost some of these names in terms of the geography. But we can still have some educated guesses about some of these things. Now, the question, of course, is where did the Red Sea crossing take place? As I've already said, uh, most Bible maps are in error on this point. But there are two credible options. First one, the first thing to mention, of course, as I said already, the Red Sea uh, is made up of this branch here, this branch here, and then obviously down below going out. Um, The maximum depth is somewhere around about 3,000 metres But then we've also got the Gulf of Suez, which runs up this way, um, by typical Egypt today, and obviously we've now got the Suez Canal, which takes it up into the Mediterranean. Uh, An average depth of two to 300 feet there. Um, And then the Gulf of Aqaba, this arm of the Red Sea that goes up this way, with a depth in some places down as much as uh, 2,000 feet. Now, the suggestions that seem most credible, either the crossing point was here at this place called Nueva, or a place down the bottom here, the Straits of Tehran. There's some interesting conjectures to support both views. The Straits of Tehran, there is what seems to be kind of almost a land bridge, bits of it have washed away here. Um, This is, again, would typically be under the surface of the water, um, but we've got this kind of reef uh, arrangement here. And uh, I know that Ron, your pastor previously here, uh, this was his position. So I encourage you to be Bereans. Uh, think about these things yourself and come to your own conclusions. So that's, that is one option. The other option is Nueva. Now in Nueva, uh, you can actually see this using Google Earth and other tools. There is, it's a very, very deep um, section of, of the, the, uh, the sea. But there is, at this particular point... Um, a land bridge just under the surface of the water um, particularly raised up at that point it's on uh, marine maps and all sorts of things now I think there's two key markers that to me indicate that Nueva is the the right place and I'll show you why I think that firstly we read in uh, chapter 14 um, that this place there's a camp between Hirath and Migdol um, uh, between Migdol and the sea now this place, Pi-Hahiroth, it means mouth of the gorges. Now if you look at this, this is as you would come out onto the Gulf of Aqaba and you come through these gorges, this mouth that leads out into the sea. So I think that's certainly very interesting because it fits the, the name of this place. The second marker, and I think this is one of the, the most compelling, is that in Exodus 13.20, they took their journey from Succoth and encamped in Etham in the edge of the wilderness, we're told. Now, that's all we're told at that point. If we look in Numbers, 
they departed from Succoth and pitched in Etham, which is in the edge of the wilderness. And they removed from Etham, okay, so they leave Etham, and turned out unto Pi-Hirath, which is before Baal-Zephon, and they pitched before Migdol. And they departed from Pi-Hirath and passed through the midst of the sea, so they've now crossed over into the wilderness and went three days' journey in the wilderness of Etham, the same place we just had mentioned, and pitched in Mara. Now, the only way they could do that is if Etham is not a one location, not a city or a town, but it's a geographical area, and that's what I believe it is. You see... The Red Sea isn't named, some people talk about it being the Reed Sea. That's not the case. The the rocks here are very red. Um, And particularly this area here, down the the Gulf of Aqaba and so on. Um, The name is quite interesting. It comes from the same root as Edom, uh, meaning obviously red. And that's where we get the name Red Sea. It's an area, geographical area, and it encompasses both sides of the Red Sea. And I think it makes sense of that scripture in Numbers, how they can be in Etham, they leave Etham, and then they end up in Etham. Now, it appears that God has led them on this journey into a dead end in the desert. And the Egyptians obviously look on this. They, the Pharaoh believes they've made a mistake, and as we just saw a moment ago, it says that they are entangled in the wilderness. God's, of course, going to harden Pharaoh's heart once again, and that's not... God acting against Pharaoh's will, that's just God confirming it in the state that it's already in, effectively. Pharaoh then is going to set off in pursuit of the Israelites. Of course, the question is, how did Pharaoh know where they'd gone? Well, the Egyptian army had various military lookouts throughout this whole area because the Sinai Peninsula, as it's referred to today, was still in Egyptian territory. So we shouldn't be surprised at that. If we look at this place, Nueba, this is just looking from a satellite picture from the air, and we zoom in, we notice that this kind of canyon, as it were, comes out onto this really, really rather large beach area, this outcrop. That's, again, uh, using uh, Google Earth, um, looking across this beach area that comes in, and looking down from the other way. Clearly enough room to have the whole of the... Israelite congregation uh, in preparation. But you can see how if they were at this point, suddenly they would realize they were very trapped. It's interesting. Moses said to the people, Fear you not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Now, if that's your view, as you're camped on this beach and you're looking across, there is no way out of this. The only way really is back and the Egyptian army is now pursuing you. Would you stand still? Would you trust God? You see, put yourself in that situation and you realize quite how incredible this moment was. The tension is almost uh, hard for us, impossible almost, to describe. These couple of commands then, don't be afraid. It's so counterintuitive, isn't it? Stand still. I suppose by very virtue of the fact there isn't anywhere else to go, that becomes the choice. But And then see the salvation of the Lord. We see a pattern that occurs throughout Scripture. 
And this really is a lesson for us as well. See that whole, do not be afraid, Psalm 37 tells us, trust in the Lord. Don't be afraid. Trust in the Lord. Stand still. Well, that's really delighting yourself in him. Trusting in his promises, believing that God is always faithful. Delighting yourself in him. And then, commit your way to him. And we will see the Lord's salvation if we learn to trust in the Lord delight ourselves in him and commit our way to him those three things that are listed for us in psalm 37 see there's a very important lesson to learn here see the red sea at this point the gulf of Aqaba, is the limit of egypt's authority passing through the sea was a necessary step for them it separated the workers of iniquity and the children of god and it had to be a step of faith as Paul talks about it in Galatians, you know, this whole business of our salvation, it's not of works, it's not of yourselves. It's God's deliverance. And it would forever separate them from all others. There's not another nation in this world that God has delivered in such a dramatic and powerful way. And forever Israel will be separate, as history has proven. Exodus 14, verse 15, And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel, that they go forward. Uh, Bear in mind where they are at this point. They're they're trapped by the sea. Go forward. And Moses is probably looking around and like, Which way is that then? But lift thou up thy rod and stretch thy hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Can you imagine Moses thinking, really? Is that possible? And the angel of the Lord, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud and darkness to them. But it gave light by night to these, so that the one came not near the other all the night. So God confounds the Egyptians, by placing them in darkness. But the Israelites have this light. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them to the midst of the sea. Notice the Egyptians get to the middle of the sea. Even all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. So they get as far as getting halfway across. Why are we told these things? Well, it's very interesting. Firstly, we're told about this strong east wind that God sends to blow. Now, in that culture... In that area of the world, it's a typical method of refrigeration. If you get a wind to blow between a very narrow place, for example, it will cool things down. In an area that typically is quite warm normally, but this can be used for refrigeration. Exodus 15 verse 8 gives us a very interesting little glimpse of what we may have going on here. This is the song that Moses is singing. We'll see in a moment. And with the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The floods stood upright as a heap. And the depths were, 
Notice what we're told here, congealed in the heart of the sea. That word congealed is very interesting. It means to change or cause to change from a solid or fluid state to a firm or solid state. The word actually comes from Latin, conglare, is the Latin word, made up of two root words, con meaning together, and glare to freeze. I think it's very interesting, because what we have here is this strong east wind then blowing across. This is Nueba, the beach they would have come, I believe, down this way to this area here. The strong east wind blows. Now, if you just think about this, as the east side would freeze first, it would have the thickest ice, if this is what happens, and it seems to me that it's the case. It means also that the west side would freeze last, and it would be the thinnest ice. And when the children of Israel are coming across, they're walking towards the thicker ice, but the Egyptian army then fall behind, and the ice that's the thinnest suddenly starts to melt, and they're trapped. I think that's what took place here. It's no less a miracle because of the timing of it, the way that God did it. still had to take that wind and God blowing, not a, a natural wind possibly, just something of supernatural strength. But we really came to pass that in the morning watch, the Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of cloud and troubled the host of the Egyptians and took off their chariot wheels. This is just wonderful, almost comical, isn't it? And they drove them heavily. Well, you will if you've got no wheels in your chariots. And so the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the sea, uh, <clears throat> that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. And again, the sun started to rise at this point. And if indeed it was that the Lord had used this method of uh, forming these walls either side of be, being of ice, uh, all of a sudden, as Moses stretched out his hands, the water starts coming through and the Egyptians are trapped. Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea and the sea returned to his strength when the morning appeared and the Egyptians fled against it. And the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea, and the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. But the children of Israel walked upon dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. Now, at this particular place, geographically there's been a number of people that have done um, research and archaeology and have di uh, dived down um, and on the sea floor at this point um, Jonathan Gray being one Lenhart Muller another individual um, uh, Ron Wyatt also had uh, been to this site um, but they photographed and there is clear evidence that on the sea floor on this land bridge that goes across there are Egyptian chariot wheels. We know they're Egyptian because of the style and design of them and so on. Many of them have been encased in coral but nevertheless they're still there. There's also bones of animals. These are just a couple of uh, shots from Lenhard Muller's book um, which deals with all of these things and there's a number of these chariot wheels and so on on the sea floor that's there. 
and there's whole axles that are there that have now been encased in coral but nevertheless they're all still there um, there's all sorts of um, cattle skeletons uh, at this particular place and you know of course you could expect the odd thing here or there but there's a big concentration here what's even more interesting is that there's two pillars they found one at Nueba but there was no markings on it they'd been eroded it had um, fallen over and it had been just washed uh, the markings everything had been washed off then they found another pillar an identical pillar on the other side indicating that this pillar had been erected by King Solomon to mark the crossing point of the Red Sea these big pillars on either side both of them date to the time of Solomon as well um, and again both at this particular location so uh, I'll leave you to come to your own conclusions but I think it's quite fascinating um, to me there's a really strong compelling evidence um, to support the biblical account here Chapter 15, we deal with the, the Song of Moses' praise. And then from there we get to the waters of Marah, these bitter waters where the children of Israel start murmuring and complaining. It becomes almost a national pastime for them. God delivers them and sets them free and they carry on from there. And they get to this place called Elam uh, where there were uh, these palm trees, uh, 70 palm trees there and also water. There is a place geographically here today where there are uh, a number of palm trees and again wells that are there as well um, which again supports what we're told in scripture chapter 16 is where we're told about the manner that God provides they, God sends in quail a strong wind blows quail in off the sea and they eat that and then in the morning there's this manner that's provided and we could spend a whole session just talking about how this manna looks and speaks of Jesus, the true bread from heaven. John chapter 6 will be an interesting chapter to go and study in relation to this, as Jesus there likens himself to that manna and speaks of himself as being the true uh, bread from heaven. Chapter 17, we get this water from the rock. We were reading about it in, in Psalm 78 earlier, and the first war. Now, the first two verses we read of chapter 17, and all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin, and sin, by the way, is just where Sinai comes from. Uh, it's not sin as in transgression as we think of sin, it's just the name of the place. Wilderness of sin, after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord, and pitched in Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. So, after seeing God doing these incredible miracles, the people were content to trust the Lord to provide. No. What happens is, they chide with Moses. They say, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, why do you have a go at me? Why do you, wherefore do you tempt the Lord? I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? We see the Lord provide for us time and again. And then something else crops up and we think, well, this time it's beaten God. You'll never be able to do with this one. It's so, so silly. This place of Rephidim is a very interesting place. Um, we uh, can locate it for a number of reasons, and we'll look at that in a moment. Uh, we looked earlier at Psalm 78. He split the rock in the wilderness. He gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He brought also, str also streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. In Corinthians Paul gives us an insight. He says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, 
all passed through the Red Sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Paul gives us this link here to that which is going on in Exodus that we're looking at, and saying how those things all point to Jesus. Now, this rock, we believe, was discovered back in 1992 by Jim and Penny Caldwell. They've actually got their own website, splitrockresearch.com. Uh, still there, you can go and check it out. Lots of interesting information. Now, you can see just from the satellite picture, it was a bit dark, but this black streak here, that's a shadow that is being cast by this rock. If we show you the rock itself... That's this rock, some 60-odd feet tall. Um, and again, the whole rock is, is split. Another picture of it you'll see there. A really tall rock. And it's kind of split down the middle. How did that happen? What caused it? Well, one of the interesting things, there's clear signs of erosion. And this is an area where they hardly have any rainfall through the year. There's no way the amount of rain they get here would be responsible for this erosion. So the question, of course, is where did that water come from that caused this? That's um, Lenhard Muller's book again. Just again, uh, the, what he imagines it would have been like. But again, the rock very clearly is there. You see a picture of a man in kind of relation to the size of this rock. And Moses is told to go up and strike this rock. As we just said already, it's a type of Christ. Uh, partly also because Christ was smitten the first time. And this rock was smitten. Later in their journeyings, they'll come to a point, we'll get to Numbers 20, where there's another rock. And Moses strikes it, but he's told not to strike it. He's told to speak to it. Because, of course, the first time Christ was smitten, but not the second time. And so we see another type here. And it's actually the incident that causes Moses to lose out on the permission to enter the promised land because he messes up this model. Well, we then get to Israel's first war in Exodus 17, verse 8. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Now, I just want to remind us again, we've seen already how Satan has been trying to stop the seed of the woman. If he can stop this, what began in the Garden of Eden, what he thought he'd dealt with there, which suddenly turned into be a bigger problem than he could have possibly imagined, he's now come up with this threefold strategy that we've been looking at. And one of the parts of that was, let's try and stop the seed of the woman coming. He thought he'd conquered them in Egypt by oppressing them and everything else. And then thought, surely they're, they're trapped, the Red Sea situation. But now... He's going to use Amalek to come to try and destroy Israel at this particular place. Amalek, they were the descendants of Esau. They're a nomadic tribe in northern Midian. And Amalek is very much a type of the flesh, our own lives. Amalek's history of conflict with Israel is seen throughout Scripture, particularly uh, Judges, a uh, number of times we see it uh, come to the fore. War breaks out. When Israel is called to rest, you see, they've, they've traveled through, they've been set free from the bondage of the Egyptians, and now, theoretically, they should be resting. And all of a sudden, the flesh, as it were, is at war with them. It's very symbolic of the war between the flesh and the spirit in our own lives. King Saul is going to be, later in Scripture, commanded to wipe out Amalek 
he fails. He allows King Agag to live. Makes Samuel very uh, cross indeed. And Haman, that we read about in the book of Esther, we find is a descendant of King Agag. But there's only one destiny for Amalek in scripture, and that was there were no treaties to be made, no surrender. It was defeat and destruction. This wasn't because of the fact that they were just ungodly people. These were descendants of the giants, the Nephilim that we've been talking about. That's why God is absolutely no mercy on them whatsoever. And there's the same picture, of course, when we look at our own lives. One destiny for our flesh life, our natural desires and so on. No treaties, no surrender, defeat and destruction. And again, with Joshua, or Jesus, because Joshua means, in the Greek, Jesus leading the battle. We find that Moses goes and stands on the top of the mountain. And Aaron and Hur come and stand and support him. But it's Joshua who goes and fights the battle. It's the first appearance of Joshua we find in scripture. And Moses looks on. Joshua leads that fight. And we're told Joshua discomforted Amalek. It's it's an incredible picture how in our own life we don't win that battle. It's our Yeshua that wins that battle. We're told that Moses built an altar. And just a few hundred yards from that split rock, we find an altar. Seems to be the altar that Moses built at this particular time to offer sacrifice and to to thank the Lord. We then get on to chapter 18. Jethro comes on the scene. And it's just interesting because Moses has sent his wife back to his father-in-law. Jethro now arrives in verse 6. He said to Moses... I, thy father-in-law Jethro, am come unto thee, and thy wife and her two sons. And Moses goes out and meets them, and they ask each other how they're doing. Lovely little picture here, because Moses, who was a deliverer rejected by Israel, goes to take a Gentile bride. We've seen that already. The Gentile bride is then sent to her father's house to escape the wrath of God being poured on the world. Israel are protected through that time of wrath, And then after all of those things, Israel and the bride are united and live in the presence of the Lord. It's the wonderful picture that we see there. It came to pass on the morrow that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood by Moses from the morning unto the evening. And Jethro looks on this and he says, what you're doing is not a good thing. He says, why sittest thyself alone and all the people stand by thee from morning to evening? See, what Jethro is doing is sowing seeds of doubt. No, you're doing the wrong thing. Jethro has already had a pretty poor track record. He says, the thing that thou doest is not good. Uh, Really? Had God got it wrong? Had God forgotten something or overlooked something? Proverbs 21.30 tells us, There is no wisdom nor understanding nor counsel against the Lord. Jethro says, Oh, you're going to wear yourself out. You can't keep doing that. You know, have you, have you heard that in ministry before? People will come up and say, oh, you, you can't keep doing that. You know, oh, oh, I wouldn't do that. You know, and the flesh starts speaking. Paul in the New Testament is very interesting. When he's given his commission from the Lord, he says, I didn't confer with flesh and blood. Didn't ask what people thought. Because I know what people are going to say. 
Man's wisdom is very dangerous. We need to remember, that as we're told in Isaiah 40, our strength comes from the Lord. Verse 29 says, He gives power to the faint, and to them that have no might, He increases strength. The youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. See, Jethro has no concept of the empowering of the God of Israel in the life of his servants. You see, we walk by faith, not by sight. Moses, in this situation, though, does accept Jethro's advice and sets up this leadership structure. But the interesting thing is, not one of the 78,060 judges that end up being appointed through this will enter the promised land. Chapter 19, we see the sanctification of Israel. Israel being set apart in preparation for what God is going to do. In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they to the wilderness of Sinai. For they were departed from Rephidim, and were come to the desert of Sinai, and had pitched in the wilderness, and there Israel camped before the mount. So they've got to Rephidim, this place here. They leave, and it would appear they go around the top of the mountain, around the backside, and they end up in this place here. It's a very large expanse. If you zoom in on it, there's about a mile uh, across in this very open kind of plain almost in the midst of the mountains that are there. Interestingly, there's a number of places, a number of sites here that the Saudi government have already marked off uh, as being of archaeological significance. We'll talk about more of those things. But you can see there's clear evidence of dwelling structures that are there. That's a a picture looking across this area. This whole area here looks as if once it was uh, underwater. And we'll show you another picture of that in a moment. And then you see up here we've got a mountain with a blackened top. We'll come back to that in a moment. Exodus 19, verse 4. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. I can not resist just mentioning this because we see the same thing in the book of Revelation. Now when the dragon saw that he'd been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle. that she may fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. You see, God led them on eagles' wings previously. He will do the same again. Exodus 19, verse 5. Now therefore, if you'll obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar peculiar treasure unto me above all people. This is a, a contract There's various covenants we read of in Scripture. Some of them are unconditional, but others have conditions. This is one of the ones that has conditions. If you will obey me, then. You see, it's very clear that we have the covenant with Abraham, for example, that's unconditional. It's it's symbolic of God's grace based on God's faithfulness. But there's a number of other covenants, and the, the this covenant here that we're looking at is conditional. It's a symbolic of God's justice based on Israel's faithfulness. And they fall over and fail and so on. Of course, God is always 
faithful. But we need to see, you know, why does God allow some of the things that happened to Israel to happen? Well, it's because they didn't keep their side of the bargain. Verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. Sanctification, we're told in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, is the will of God, that we be set apart. If you ask the question, what is God's will? God's will is very simple, is that we be set apart. Everything you're experiencing in your life right now is for that end. God's will is that we be set apart from the things of this world. That's the will of God. It's very, very simple. So why are you going through this situation? Lord, why have you allowed this? It's to set you apart. There may be other things that the Lord is also doing, but that will always be a primary factor of whatever circumstance is to set us apart. You see, there was an individual setting apart here and a corporate setting apart. Moses was sanctified first and then the people. And maybe we could see that in the light of the church. If we want to see the church truly sanctified and set apart. And let's bring it close to home. If we want to see this fellowship here set apart for the Lord's use. But it's got to start with ourselves. We must first be set apart from the things of this world. The good news, of course, is that that work of sanctification, setting us apart, is actually a work of grace. It's not something we have to do. It's just something we have to learn to submit to. So, again, we have this area here. Now, that's just a a drawing, again, from Lenhard Buller's book. Um, And this whole area seems to have, at one point, had lots of water. We read in Scripture that the Lord provided them water when they were here. And there's various other encampments. There's an altar here. We'll look at that in just a moment. Um, very interesting structure over here. We'll come back to that in a short while, and so on. This is the same picture. This is actually a, an aerial photograph of this area. But you can see what clearly looks like there was once water here that shaped the area. That's the altar. You can't maybe see very clearly, but if we just put a, a map or lines around it, you can see the rock structure there. Okay? And this used to be an altar that would have been used for sacrificing. Moses was commanded to build an altar and does so at this point. Uh, that's a closer look of it. Clearly these are man-made structures. Another interesting uh, collection of rocks built around. What were they used for? Well, probably something like that. A dwelling, at, uh, a camp for the children of Israel. Again, that's the, the rock structure as it exists today. Um, may well be used uh, and that is, uh, they can bear in mind they spent two years at this point in this particular location we're told uh, 19, chapter 19 verse 17 Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the nether part of the mountain Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace and the, the whole mount quaked greatly now it's interesting because we look at the mountain and as I said to you already, the top of the mountain here has got this blackened rock. I remember speaking to Ron who met and knew Bob Cornuke. Bob Cornuke had been out there. They'd taken some of the rock from this mountain. They'd taken it back to New York. They'd given it to a laboratory and they said, I want you to tell us what this is. It's not volcanic rock. There's no volcanic rocks in the area. They tested it and they said it's superheated granite. They couldn't explain what could have superheated it but it was superheated granite 
And of course, we're told in Scripture that God comes down on top of the mountain in this fire. Uh, and that's exactly what we find at this mountain. Very, very interesting. I was talking to a chap on the train as I was preparing this week and putting some of these slides together. And he said to me, but I didn't think that what you believe was based on evidence. I said, oh yes. I said, I have faith. I said, but faith doesn't mean that I don't have facts to support it. I said, when you sit on a chair, I said, you have faith. But that faith is based upon empirical evidence. You believe that that chair will support you, but it's still faith. And we had a very interesting conversation, which we're going to carry on this week, Lord willing. So, Chapter 20 through to 23, we find the giving of the law, these commandments. As I said earlier, 613 are uh, specifically highlighted by the Jews. And on top of that, they value their oral tradition as well. Jesus' summary, though, is quite simple. He says, love the Lord your God. That's drawn from Deuteronomy 6. And then, love your neighbor as yourself. Why is it that Jesus comes up with those two? Well, quite simply, because that is the, the best breakdown of the law. If you look at the Ten Commandments, they fall into those two camps. The first four commandments really are all about loving the Lord your God. From commandment number five through to ten of the Ten Commandments, Love your neighbor as yourself. And it's interesting the way they're grouped. Because the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. All the other commandments we find are all rooted from that one. The next section, the love your neighbor commandments if you like, honor your father and mother, well that's really the root for all the rest. If you honor your father and mother, it will change your perception and your way of dealing with your fellow men. So interesting the way these are grouped together. Again, we could spend many weeks just going through the details of these things. What we're going to do this Thursday night, amongst just chatting back some of these things, we're going to talk about the purpose of the law. Why was the law given? What is the law? Is the law not too harsh? What about the power and the limitations of the law, the purpose of the law? the proper use of the law and the improper use of the law and then ask the question what law are we under so we're going to look at some of those things as we get to thursday evening what we are told in psalm 19 is that the law of the lord is perfect converting the soul you see one of the reasons the lord the lord has given us the law is to bring conviction of sin the law exposes us as sinners it's interesting, we read in Romans 5.20, Moreover the law entered that the offence might abound. What does that mean? Does it mean that because of the law we sin more? Some people actually understand it that way. That's not what it's saying at all. That's like looking in your mirror and you see a police car following you. It doesn't matter whether you're doing the speed limit, suddenly you're very aware of the law. You're very aware of the rules of the road. And your driving improves tenfold. You see, the law magnifies sin. That's what the law does. The law shows us how bad sin is because we suddenly are confronted with God's standard as we look at these things. A.B. Earl said, I found by long experience that the severest threatenings of the law of God have a prominent place in leading men to Christ. They must see themselves lost before they will cry for mercy. 
They'll not escape the danger uh, until they see it. A.W. Pink said, The unsaved today are in no condition for the gospel till the law be applied to their hearts. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. It's a waste of time to sow seeds on a ground which has never been ploughed or spaded. And I love this one from Spurgeon. He says, One other reason why this soil was so uncongenial was that it was totally unprepared for the seed. There had been no ploughing before the seed was sown and no harrowing afterwards. And I love this. He says, He that sows without a plough may reap without a sickle. He who preaches the gospel without preaching the law may hold all the results of it in his hand and there will be little for him to hold. We'll talk a lot more about these things on Thursday evening if you're able to come along. <clears throat> Chapter 24 through 31, then we get the instructions for the tabernacle. <clears throat> we told that Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and the judgments and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said we will do. Very bold declaration. It's very much like Peter's declaration in the New Testament. Yet though everyone else will abandon you and so on, I'll never leave you. Only to find that the next hurdle he falls down. Then we're told about the Sabbath law. I just want to read this to you because I think this is just so significant, it's worth mentioning. You should keep the Sabbath therefore, for it is holy unto you. Everyone that defiles it shall be surely put to death. For whosoever does any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days may work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath of rest. Holy to the Lord. Whosoever does any work in the Sabbath day, he shall be surely put to death. To my knowledge, there is not a Bible college or a scholar in this country or in this world even that would look at these two verses and say, I think what Moses was referring to there were long time periods. I think what he's saying is rather than six days you should do work and the seventh you should rest, it's probably referring to maybe millions of years um, and then we could have a long time off. Nobody goes down that route. But let's look at the very next verse. Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. There is no question. God says he made everything in six days. If you have a problem with that, go speak to God. Because this is what the Bible says. On, uh, in Exodus 31, 18, it's made even worse for the problem, people that have a problem with it because we're told he gave, unto Mo- he gave unto Moses when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai two tablets of testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. So these laws that Moses is getting, including Exodus 20.11, which says, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, God writes that with his own finger. Exodus 32, we get to this horrible situation where Israel go a-sinning. People saw that Moses had delayed... They said to Aaron, come on, let's, let's make us gods that will go before us. As for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And so they break off all their earrings and all the golden bits that they've taken from um, um, Egypt 
and they throw it into a fire and out pops his golden calf. It's a crazy situation. They so willingly give in to the things they desire. The incredible thing is they still call this their God. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. How could you do that? How can you start calling those things God? But we see the same things going on in the church today. People inventing a God to suit themselves. It was moulded very much after the Apis bull, the Egyptian bull that was worshipped in Egypt. Still very much part of their thinking. And the dangerous people will get into those things so, so sadly. They make their proclamations of these things, they uh, bow down to it. And it's one of the issues and the problems of the emerging church. They want the church today. They want a point of contact with God. They want to create God in their image, according to their imagination which of course is a violation of the second commandment. It's been said before that the less you need a physical memorial, the more spiritual you'll become. You know, God is spirit, and those that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Well, if we zoom in on this area again that we've been looking at, the altar of Moses is highlighted there, but there's also this altar to the golden calf. You can see it from the air here. If you put a ring around the outside of it, you can see it. And there's still, even to this day, this altar. And interestingly, on the side of this altar, there are these engravings of the Apis bull, the Egyptian bull. Now, Egypt has never had any need or uh, reason to be in this place. Well, God is going to destroy the people at this point. Moses steps in. He intercedes on behalf of the people. And he doesn't plead their innocence, but he appeals to God's character. It's interesting, actually... What he says, he says, Lord, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swear by your own self, and said unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, that they shall inherit it forever. See, it's God's land, and God was giving it forever to his descendants. That's the basis that Moses pleads. You know, it's really good when we pray to God that we pray on the basis of things that God has already promised. And we're told the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Can God repent? That's not in our understanding. That's not what we, uh, how we understand this. In Hebrew, there's a couple of words meaning uh, repent, the first one is, as we would understand, repent, turn back or retreat and so on. But the second one that's used here is this naham, which is to sigh or to breathe strongly. It's, it's to be sorry. That's all that's happening here. There's another model here. Moses is a type of Christ because he delivers the people from slavery and bondage. He ascends to the Father because he goes up onto the mountain to be with God. But before he goes, he promises to return. But just two to three days before he returns, the people start to doubt his return and make a God in their own image. And uh, it's interesting to know that not all fell into idolatry. The Levites, those who separated themselves, the brethren, the family, those related by blood, remain loyal. It's just interesting. Well, we then get to the promises being reiterated. Uh, and so on in Exodus 33. 
this promise of the angel of the Lord to be with them, uh, to go with them. And we find throughout um, the Old Testament appearances and uh, situations where this angel of the Lord uh, will be with them. Joshua, Gideon and many others uh, are confronted and meet this angel of the Lord. seems to be a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus Christ. Exodus 33, we read that when the people heard these evil tidings, they mourned. And this is after the, the golden calf thing. They realize that they've messed up and they repent. They realize how gracious God is. It's interesting to know what we're told in the book of Romans. Because there we're told that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And when we're told they strip themselves of their ornaments, all these things that were really trappings of Egypt... They put it aside and then finally we find that the law is restored. Moses has broken the first two tablets of stone. He goes back up the mountain. He cuts out another to himself. This time he has to do it himself though. It's interesting. The first tablets implies God cut them out of the rock and gave them to Moses. The second two, Moses has to do it himself. You know, it's always harder once we've crossed that line. Once we've sinned. Once we've done something we shouldn't have done. It's always harder from that point. Again, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. This is beautiful. We're given this this declaration of who God is. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord is merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, upon the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The names that were given, I mean, Hebrew names, we know already have meaning. But these are the names of God. Esau, we know, means red. Jacob means grabber. But God tells us of his names here. Merciful, that's not getting what we deserve. Gracious, that's getting what we don't deserve, being given something. Long-suffering, that's the first attribute of love. Abounding in goodness and truth. Generous, keeping mercy for thousands. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And by the way, those three things are separate. It's quite interesting. If you look at scripture, you find um, uh, Leviticus highlights this. Iniquity is basically the perversity within us. Transgression is rebellion, crossing a line. And sin is missing the mark. And then the seventh name of God is this justice. By no means clearing the guilty and so on. The divine love of God is associated with the divine justice of God. For God to be holy and righteous and just, his justice must come before his love. And ultimately, his justice will be satisfied upon a wooden cross demonstrating his love. We then get to a wonderful portion in chapter 35 where the people then bring willingly their offerings. And they have an abundance then. Chapter 36, we then get the construction of the tabernacle. And there's a number of things that are in the tabernacle that we see. Exodus 26, we'll deal with a lot of these things. But they start all these things. I'm not going to go through them now. They'll be in the notes uh, on the slides you can have access to. Um, All of the things that were used in the construction of the tabernacle, 
all point to Jesus Christ in some way or another. The whole of the tabernacle rests on these silver sockets, silver and metal, speaking of redemption. And everything is built upon the redemptive work of Jesus. They then finally, to round out the book, build this tabernacle. And it's a wonderful study to do in its own right. As we look at these these things that the Lord commanded Moses to make, the Ark of the Covenant, representing the law of God, the mercy seat, the authority of God, the table of showbread, representing fellowship with God, the lampstand, and that's just a wonderful study in itself, how that speaks of the church, made out of one solid lump as it were beaten into shape the bronze altar speaking of the judgment of God the altar of incense again, the prayers of the saints the bronze laver represents the cleansing of the saints and incidentally that bronze laver was made out of the mirrors of the women that they left Egypt it was something that you could see your own reflection in And then we get to the tabernacle itself and all of these component parts. Uh, The entrance to the tabernacle was on the side of the tribe of Judah. And even in that, there's a wonderful picture, of course, of what Christ accomplished. That's just a representation of what the the ark may well have looked like. The table of showbread, something similar to that. There is actually the table of showbread that's been rebuilt or made, rather, sitting in the Temple Institute in Jerusalem getting ready for the newly rebuilt temple. And that's that picture from the Temple Institute. Of course, this seven-branch candlestick, there is also one of those in Jerusalem. Uh, it's been moved from that location now to within sight of the Temple Mount. There's the altar of incense again. They've already rebuilt and is ready. Uh, and so on, the altar of sacrifice. Uh, a lot of these things they have already remade, getting ready for the rebuilt temple, the bronze laver. Uh, and again, just the, the whole of the tabernacle, all of these pieces and parts fitted together. And as we uh, go through our study script, we'll see numerous references to these things. Uh, we then find a number of component parts that make up the clothing of the priest. Each of those things have real significance, including the breastplate um, that the priest was to wear. Um, very interesting, and it's worthy of much uh, greater study so to conclude we see God's guidance his constant presence residing over the mercy seat resting upon the ark of the covenant surrounded by the tabernacle of meeting every individual tent in Israel faced the tabernacle we'll see and we'll look at it next time in the book of Numbers how um, the tents of Israel all were grouped around the tabernacle so this cloud, this pillar would lead them obviously God's movements determined their movements, that's how it should be for us the need to follow and safeguard against wandering astray and again Israel began the book in bondage and slavery and they end with them being free to follow God Such a wonderful, wonderful book. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the incredible detail that we see. Father, we thank you that we are reading an historical account. But Lord, it's an account, although rooted in history, that tells us of our own lives. 
of our own needs to be so dependent upon the shed blood of the Lamb and to learn to follow you, to walk with you. Lord, we just thank you now. We just pray your blessing upon us as we go from here this day. Lord, keep us growing in knowledge and grace. Lord, get us excited, Lord, more and more about your word. Your word that is so alive, so living, so powerful. Father, we just thank you for this time. And again, just pray your blessing on us. For your glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.